James chapter 5, we're going to cover verses 1 to 8, and I've called this, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And that's a, a quote, one of the verses we're going to go through today. So, as usual, we'll go through the memory verses. This is the main theme of the book of James, and it helps us to remember what it's all about. The big picture. So, try and do it with your eyes closed. Big voices. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Hey, getting better every week. This is awesome. <laughs> so, let's pray. Father, give us wisdom as we go through. Open the eyes of our hearts so we can see spiritual truth. Because only your Spirit can reveal these things to us. Only the Spirit can reveal the things of the Spirit. So we just pray that you will reveal these things to us. Help our hearts to be soft and to receive the Word, and so it will bear fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, James is one of those books where you've got to learn to toughen up a bit, you know, as one of my friends would say, go to Bunnings and have a glass of concrete or something. <laughs> toughen up, harden up. Because basically he just says it as it is. And it's quite painful sometimes to see the truth about ourselves and the difference between how I live when I'm living according to my sinful nature versus how I live when I'm living according to the Spirit, when I'm being led by the Spirit and operating by the Spirit's power. So, today we come to probably one of the most strongly worded passages, but it's good. It's not for Christians, it's for non-Christians this time. And there's a reason for it. James is going to show us the end or the fate of the people who don't believe so that we won't be envious of them. So, let's read James chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Come now, you rich. Okay, remember these are the unbelieving rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or host, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, an outline just to give the big picture of what we're covering today. We have this dire warning for the unbelieving rich. These are the people who live their whole lives for themselves. They're completely dominated by their sinful nature and that's what they do for their entire life. So what's the purpose of 
going into this detail about the end of the wicked, how their eternal destiny is horrible. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Well, who wants to be like that? Who wants to share in their fate? Yeah? Not me. So if you know that that's how they're going to end up, then you don't want to be like them. And that's the idea. Because in verse 7, James shifts to pleading with the believers not to live with an earthly or temporary focus, but to keep our eyes on the Lord, on the coming of the Lord. Now why? Because all things will be made right. Every score will be settled and everything that we have sacrificed for the kingdom of God will be so much more than worth it. Remember that song we sang before? 2 Timothy 1 verse 12. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him until that day. So that's basically what James is saying. One day, we are going to stand before Jesus at the Bema Seat Judgment. It's a judgment of reward, not a judgment of condemnation. That's the Great White Throne Judgment, which is different. That's for the unbelievers, and that comes much later. When we go to heaven, when we're raptured and taken up to heaven, and Christ comes to take his church off this earth, then we will stand before him. And we will be kicking ourselves for not willing to sacrifice and willingly give more or suffer more for the sake of the gospel. When we finally see and fully understand the rich reward or prize that God has waiting for us, we will realize how foolish we were all those times we chose to seek the temporary or earthly things instead. I imagine that we will be thinking, I gave up this heavenly, eternal, glorious reward for, for what? <laughs> for nothing, you know? A bit of pleasure or, you know, this rubbish. That's what we're going to think of it. To escape that little bit of stress or escape that pain. How stupid was I? So, perspective. That's the key word for the day. One of the key words, perspective. We need to have the right perspective. It changed the way we live. And... Part of the right perspective that we need to have is the future condemnation and suffering of the ungodly rich. If we understand what the end of the ungodly is, then we will not be envious of them and not want to live like them. So let's read James 5, 1-3. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You heaped up treasure in the last days. Now, I've got a quote from John Corson that summarizes this. Because the language in verse 7 makes it clear that he is addressing the true believer, James's harsh words here in verse 3 are not directed to true brothers, but to those who are only playing church. They are directed to those who thought that they would be saved in the last day because of their wealth. They are directed to those who are using their money to be esteemed highly in the church. Remember, James is talking to people in the church, Jewish believers. But again, we know that not everybody who goes to church is a Christian, right? Now, I'm thinking that these rich people who are going to church 
thought that because they were rich, that God was blessing them, and that God thought that they were okay. But that's not true, is it? Material wealth is not an indicator of God's blessing. I'll say it again. Material wealth is not an indicator of God's blessing. Most of the prophets in the scriptures, were they rich or poor? Poor. If you read Hebrews, they didn't live very well. Paul didn't live very well. He was often in nakedness and hungry and in peril and homeless, all those things. So don't get trapped into thinking that, well, I'm materially well off, I'm secure, I have my financial security, I must be blessed by God. Not necessarily. It depends on where your heart's at. So let's have a look at verses 1 to 6. It says, come now, you're rich. Now, just because you're rich, it doesn't mean you're evil. Okay, Someone once said that money is a good slave, but a terrible master. <laughs> money is a good slave, but a terrible master. If you can use your money, your wealth that God has blessed you with, if that's God's will, and you are the God of your money, and the money is not the God of you, then that's a good thing, and you can be a blessing in God's kingdom. We need people who are well off to give to missions and to Bible translations and all those things. But don't let money rule you. It's not good. It's not a good master. One of the big problems with wealth is that it's so easy for us to trust in it and not trust in God. So remember in the first four chapters of James, one of the main points is that we need to live in dependence on God. We cannot please God if we're living by our own strength and following our own sinful human nature desires. So remember, if we are depending on God and allowing the Holy Spirit to direct and empower our lives and we'll be blessed with good relationships, we'll be close, unselfish, loving relationships both with God and with each other, and we will experience God's love, joy, and peace in our hearts. However, as you read through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, material prosperity has always been a difficult thing for people to handle. And there's many examples of riches and wealth causing people to stray from the faith or even not come to faith because it is so easy to think that riches will make you happy, supply all your needs, and protect you. But who is the only person who can do that? Who is the only one who can really supply all our needs, make us happy and content and protect us? Well, it's only God. The reality is that material prosperity is the cause of many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6, 10-14 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, patience, gentleness. So again, why does money cause people to abandon their faith in God? Because it's so attractive. It's have strayed from their faith in their greediness. And as they chase money and the things that money can buy, then they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. 
And the exaltation here in Timothy is very similar to what James is saying in chapter 5. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and gentleness. You've got to have a different perspective. And then also in verse 1 it says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. You can't put it any more bluntly. For those rich people who are living the good life, a life where ease, comfort and financial security is the highest priority, this is a really tough pill to swallow. The rich can be very proud and often reject the message of salvation as being foolish because they don't think that they need it. They are content with what they have, their lifestyle, and they think that they are safe from harm and hardship. Proverbs gives us more on this. It says their riches are like a castle. They think of their riches as a castle. It protects them. But this is a dangerous place to be, and we don't have to be all that rich to be in this place where we don't have to depend, or we think we don't have to depend on God for our daily provisions or needs. And, you know, in our Western world, most of us would be defined as rich. Most of us can go where we want, eat where we want, spend what we want, and live where we want. You know, we've all got limits, but basically, in the Western world, most people can do that. But these things are not lasting things, they're fleeting things. Why? Verses 2 and 3, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. So here we see the destruction of three types of wealth. Food. Remember in those days they used to store their oil and their grain and things like that. And that was something they used to trade with. That was a type of wealth. Well, what happens to that over time? It rots. It corrupts. Your clothes. Clothes are also very, very valuable back then. Well, clothes will be eaten by moths. They'll wear out. Your precious metals will corrode. So all the material things, our houses and caravans and cars and careers, look, they're all going to come to nothing eventually. And in verse 3 it says, And their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So when the unrepentant rich, those who were never saved, die, they will end up rotting in hell, suffering in hell. And the days of comfort, that, that, that they enjoyed here on earth will not be remembered as a blessing but as a curse. They will finally see that their riches blinded them to the truth of the gospel and now they are in torment for eternity. So their change in perspective came too late, you see. One day they will see that their riches were worth nothing and they were actually a curse and not a blessing but it's too late once you're already dead because you can't take it with you and if it's caused you to not accept the Messiah as your saviour, then it really will eat your flesh like fire. The cost. What have I done? You have heaped up treasure in the last days in verse 3. So instead of heaping up or storing up treasures on earth, what should we be doing? Storing up treasures in heaven, yeah. Jesus invites a rich young ruler in Luke 18, verse 22. When Jesus heard his answer, he said to the rich young ruler, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Notice the word then. It says, then come, follow me. Here's where we have an example of you need to believe and repent. You're not a follower of Jesus. You're not a believer until you've done both of those things. So what was the response of the rich young ruler? He went away sad. He was not willing to give up his life of ease, comfort, and financial security. So what does this tell us about the reality of those who are rich and continue to reject God? What's going on in their hearts? Deep down, they are still sad, unfulfilled, and terribly insecure. Why? I need to protect my money. I need more money. Because they fear the loss of their money and they don't want to be in a place where they don't have this protection that money gives and the lifestyle that money gives. And what Jesus says next about riches is very serious. In Luke 18, 23 to 27, it says, But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. That's a rich young ruler. When Jesus saw this, he said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, Then who in the world can be saved? He replied, What is impossible for people is possible with God. Amazing, eh? Riches or wealth, which in our society are esteemed as being really good and a sign of God's blessing. A lot of people, I'm not saying everyone here does, but a lot of people in the Western church consider riches as a sign of God's blessing upon them are actually something that Jesus doesn't think much of at all. He thinks of riches as something that's going to hinder you and not help you. As I said, riches are a good slave, but a terrible master. Why? Again, because we can so easily begin to depend on those things and find our fulfillment in those things instead of God. So this is the clear and present danger of living as a Christian in a very materialistic, money-driven Western world. So basically, bottom line, materialism is an enemy to our relationship with God. So, I'd rather be poor and born in Africa and be hungry and know the Lord than live a comfortable life in Australia and cruise down the wide and easy road that leads to hell. And, you know, I did some research because I kind of knew it to be true, but I wanted to make sure it was true. So I, I did some research. The rates of conversion to Christianity are higher in countries where the Christians are persecuted. So, To put it really simply, more people are saved when life is hard than when life is easy. And I've got a quote from ChristianToday.com, and it brings this into perspective. And I didn't put in the section that explains that the Western church is actually, in a lot of places, in decline, especially the evangelical church. It's in decline. So this is a quote from ChristianToday.com. The church has seen dramatic and explosive growth in Asia, Africa and South America. The growth of the African church in particular is jaw-dropping. 
In 1900, there were fewer than 9 million Christians in Africa. Now there are more than 541 million. In the last 15 years alone, the church in Africa has seen a 51% increase, which works out on average at around 33,000 people either becoming Christians or being born into Christian families each day in Africa alone. Strangely, this statistical growth is often met with some scepticism by the Western Church. I often hear derogatory remarks about Christianity outside Europe, North America and Australia. There is a superiority complex when it comes to the global church. There remains a conviction that Western Christians should be congratulated for heading off on teaching ministries to educate church leaders or for raising funds to correct theological challenges in the rest of the world. Christians in Nigeria and South Sudan are facing extreme levels of persecution and the church is still growing. But it is rare for Christians in the West to think that we have anything to learn from believers there. Very few of our conference speakers, authors, worship leaders or resources originate from the rest of the world. So it takes a bit of time to think about that, our attitude towards those people who are suffering in the world. We think we have it all together, but they're growing and we're not. So who really does have it all together? So I think we need to change our perspective on what we think is actually good for us. Overall, okay, I'm not saying wealth is bad. God has blessed people with wealth, like Abraham. Wealth and the things that go along with the education career are not good for us, or can be not good for us, because they can so easily cause us to become independent of God. Materialism is a huge and powerful temptation to stop depending on the Lord. So if we have everything we want, then we won't easily see our need for God. And raising kids. Obviously, you don't want to neglect your kids. But maybe, maybe if you give them too much, it's worse than neglect. Maybe if you give them too much, you're preventing them from seeing the need for the Lord, from trusting in the Lord. So we need wisdom. How do we raise our kids? Without neglecting them and without giving them too much so they become spoiled and just don't care about other things, especially their own salvation. So in verse 3 it talks about the last days. In the last days, what does it mean? Well, basically in the epistles and in the gospels and that, it talks about the last days as being happening then. So basically, the last days is since Christ's first coming. We are living in the last days since Christ's first coming. Why? Because Jesus could come back at any time. The church in the first century was expecting Jesus to come back, so so should we. And the analogy is like this. We're not heading towards the cliff, like driving a car towards the cliff. We're driving along the cliff. And we can go over at any time. If that makes sense? We're not driving towards it and one day we'll go over the edge. No, we're driving along the edge and any time it could be the day when Jesus takes us. So now we move on to verses 4 to 6. I've called this the sins of the rich. 
So indeed the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields which kept back which you kept back by fraud cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. Do you think anything's changed in today's society? Do you think that people are still using each other? Or, you know, especially the rich, they're using people to get richer? Do you think people, corporations, care about the people who work for them? (laughs) Nah, it's horrible. The bottom line is usually always money or profits at any cost. And the lengths that many people go to to increase their wealth is often extreme. And this is not an overstatement. Okay, it's not an exaggeration. You're condemned. You have murdered the just. He does not resist you. This is still happening today, all over the world. Verse 4 says, The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Now, I've got a comment from David Guzik here, which explains this. The title Lord of Sabaoth in James 5.4 should not be confused with the similar title Lord of the Sabbath used in Mark 2.28 and Luke 6.5. Instead, it is a translation of the idea behind the Hebrew term Lord of Hosts, and you'll read that in Romans 9.29, which quotes Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. And it means the Lord of armies, especially in the sense of heavenly and angelic armies. It describes God as the warrior, the commander-in-chief of all heavenly armies. The use of this title was meant to give these unjust a sober warning. The cries of the people they had oppressed had come to the ears of the God who commands heavenly armies, the God of might and power of judgment. So basically, (laughs) if you heard the term, you're going to meet your maker. (laughs) That's what's happening. The cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, the Lord of heaven's armies. God is going to do something about this. Watch out. And it says also, you have condemned, you have murdered the just, he does not resist you. And as I said before, every score will be settled, every wrong will be made right. At the moment we look around, is everyone getting justice? No, people are getting away with crime all the time. There's not much justice in this world. But the Lord of Heaven's armies, the warrior, has promised to bring justice, equity and fairness to all. And it's just a matter of time until the wicked are punished. It's not if, it's when. So when you look around the world and you say, this is not fair, where is God? Just remember that, why does God hold back? Why doesn't God judge the wicked now? Because of his mercy, and the longer he holds back, the more people can be saved. That's basically it. Now, when are most people going to get their due reward? This life or the next? Yeah, the next life, yeah, when they get their punishment. So, again, it's perspective. Now we move on to James addressing believers. What does James have to say to us as believers? In James chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, he says this, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, 
waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So verse 7, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. So who is James writing to? Persecuted Jewish believers, persecuted Jewish Christians. And here he tells them how long they need to wait or endure until the coming of the Lord. It's not a week, it's not a month, it's not a year. It's till the coming of the Lord. Now, they didn't get raptured, and we might not get raptured. We've got a higher chance of getting raptured when God takes us up from this earth. But, how long do we need to be patient? Our whole life. Life is an exercise in learning how to be patient. <laughs> There's no quick and easy answers for Christian suffering. It's a lifetime of growth and change. And God's tool for changing us is trials, whether it be persecution or hard times or temptation. So one of the songs I really like is uh, One Day at a Time, Sweet Jesus, and I'm just going to read the chorus to this song. One day at a time, sweet Jesus, that's all I'm asking of you. Just give me the strength to do every day what I have to do. Yesterday's gone, sweet Jesus, and tomorrow may never be mine. Lord, help me today. Show me the way, one day at a time. So, we have our whole lives to look forward to, to expect God to be working in us, changing us, growing us, to become more like him. We have to learn to endure. We have to learn to be strong. That's what God is doing. He's preparing us for the next life when we go and serve him in his millennial kingdom. Now, another point I want to make here is that we have to leave all vengeance to the Lord. We have to wait patiently for his justice and not take things into our own hands. Now the Bible says that instead of seeking revenge, we should be seeking to bless those who are persecuting us. And one of the scriptures that talks about this is Romans 12, 19-21. And this should be our attitude towards those who are evil. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge, I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. So, letting evil conquer you is retaliating, getting back. All right? But if you do something nice to those who are purposefully hurting you, if you return good for evil, then you are conquering them. That's how it works in the kingdom of God. In verse 7 it says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently. So, here's a bit of a funny picture for you. The farmer goes out one day with his cedar, puts his seed in the ground, and then the next day he goes out with the header, you know, the harvester. Is that going to happen? No, there's going to be nothing there, is there? Okay. He's got to wait almost a year. 
for his crops to come up. So once the farmer puts in the crop, he knows that he's in there for the long haul. He's got to fertilise, he's got to spray, and he's got to protect that crop until the day comes when it's ready for harvest. And James uses this picture of the farmer growing a crop for the Christian. We are going to reap our harvest, but we've got to persevere. If the farmer gives up and abandons his crop, then it's gone. We need to persevere so we reap our harvest, we reap our reward, which is coming. As Christians, we get sucked into the I want it now or the instant gratification way of thinking. You know, this world says you can have it now, you can have what you want today. Fast food type thing. Fast food Christianity, I call it sometimes. And we start to think that I can pull into the Christian growth stop and get a a quick fix and everything's good. It doesn't work like that, does it? We might say, I've read my Bible for a week and now I'm still not perfect. Come on, God, what's the hold up? No, it's a lifetime of study. It's a lifetime of choosing to spend time with the Lord, choosing to draw near to the Lord. And the harvest is a good harvest. We need to look forward to it. We'll get into that in a minute. But James's farming analogy really helps us to understand that the work God does in us, the growing of our character and faith, really does take a lot of time. In fact, how long? Our whole life. We wonder why the trials just keep on coming, because we fail to see that God has the long-term plan in place. This is why we need to develop or cultivate endurance. And David Guzik has a good comparison as to how the farmer waiting to harvest his crops is similar to the Christian waiting for God to bring forth fruit in their own lives. So I'm just going to go through these points, these comparison points. So the farmer, or he, waits with a reasonable hope and expectation of reward. He waits a long time. He waits working all the while. He waits depending on things out of his own power with his eye on the heavens. He waits despite changing circumstances and many uncertainties. He waits encouraged by the value of the harvest. He waits encouraged by the work and harvest of others. He waits because he really has no other option. He waits because it does no good to give up. He waits aware of how the seasons work. He waits because as time goes on, it becomes more important to wait and not less to wait. Also in verse 7, it says, uh, until it receives the early and latter rain. So as you know, in farming, you need the rain to germinate the crop and you need the rain to mature the crop. Now, can the farmer control the rain? I don't know any farmers that can control the rain. So what do they do? They trust. They put their crop in and they trust. Yeah. What do we do as Christians? We sow. We put the time into our relationship with God. We put the time into his kingdom. And we trust that God will bring the harvest. In verse 8 it uses the word establish. And the Greek word translated as established means to support, strengthen, confirm, prop up, make fast, establish in, in a place to continue to fix or to make fast. So 
we went through something similar last week when we talked about Jesus. In Isaiah 50 verse 7, it says that Jesus set his face like a stone or a flint. And what he was doing was establishing his heart so that he would continue to do the Father's will, no matter how difficult or painful the immediate circumstances might be. Now last week we talked about Gethsemane and Jesus for three hours, three one-hour prayer meetings with God, the Father, just pouring out his heart and crying out to God for help to give him the strength to go through that trial. He was establishing his heart. He was submitting his will to God's will. That's what we're doing here. Verse 8, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So what does it mean to establish our hearts? Well, we focus on Jesus. We seek the heavenly city. We seek the eternal reward. And we'll trust that Jesus will work all things out for our good in his perfect timing. Now, there's a great quote from Spurgeon. He says, When God shall give you a rich return for all you have done for him, you will blush to think you have ever doubted. You will be ashamed to think you ever grew weary in his service. You shall have your reward. Not tomorrow, so wait. Not the next day, perhaps, so be patient. You may be full of doubts one day, your joys sink low. It may be rough, windy weather with you in your spirit. You may even doubt whether you are the Lord's. But if you have rested in the name of Jesus, if by the grace of God you are what you are, if he is all your salvation and all your desire, have patience. Have patience for the reward will surely come in God's good time. So, when we stand before the Lord at the Bema Seat Judgment, at the start of that quote again, when God shall give you a rich return for all you have done for him, you will blush to think you ever doubted. You will be ashamed to think you ever grew weary in his service. You shall have your reward. What was that verse again? But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. And establishing our hearts, I just want to go through a couple of examples of Paul and some practical examples of what does it mean to establish your heart. And I've got six things that I've pulled out of these scriptures in Philippians and Colossians. So, establishing our hearts. So I'm going to read first from Philippians chapter 3, and then later Colossians chapter 3. So Philippians chapter 3 verse 7, to start, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. So what's the first thing we do? What's one of the most important things we do in establishing our hearts? The things we thought were valuable, we count them as rubbish, worthless. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so I could gain Christ and become one with him. Then it goes on in verse 12. 
I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing. Okay, this is Paul establishing his heart. What's he focusing on? Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God through Christ Jesus is calling us. So, we give up the old and we embrace the new. We look forward to what lies ahead. Press on to reach the end of the race and to receive the heavenly prize. We have something worth fighting for. We have something worth enduring for. So the second point there is make the deliberate choice to forget the past and look forward to what lies ahead to receive the heavenly prize. Now the next one is in Philippians 3, it's verse 17, found in verse 17 through 19. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine or imitate me. And learn from those who follow our example, for I have told you often before, and say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction, their God is appetite, they brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. So another important thing, or thing to choose to remember, is the fate of the wicked. Paul is saying the same thing here as James said in James chapter 5. Paul cries for these people. These are people in the church he's talking about here. They are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Why? Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. So one of the important things we need to do to establish our hearts is to make a deliberate choice to remember the fate of the unbelieving. Now the next one is found in Philippians chapter 3 verse 20. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our saviour. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own using the same power which he will bring everything under his control. So to establish our hearts we choose we consciously determine to remember that we are citizens of heaven and we are eagerly waiting for Jesus to return as our Saviour. Now we go to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honour at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, I like that, and Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. How much? All his glory. Okay. So there is number five, point number five for how do we establish our hearts? How do we cement our view, our perspective, so it's a heavenly perspective? Well, remember that there is a reward waiting for us and we will share in God's glory. Now the last one, in Colossians 3, verse 16 and 17. Let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. 
Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to God with thankful hearts. And whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So, how do we establish our own hearts? Well, we encourage others to establish their hearts too. We encourage others to pursue the Lord. It says, teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. So this is why we need community. This is why we need church. Because we are encouraging each other to establish our hearts on God, to establish a heavenly perspective and not a temporary, earthly, physical perspective, which is going to get us into a whole lot of trouble. So, conclusion. We need to keep focused on the end game, on the long haul. And one of my favorite psalms, which really sums this whole passage up, is Psalm 73. It's a prayer of Asap, one of the authors of the psalms. And he almost gave up living for God. He almost quit. And in his heart, he was actually growing bitter. As he was going through all his trials, he's growing bitter. Now, something changed. He took the time to seek the Lord. And only then did God reveal to him the big picture. God showed Asaph that although things look bad from a human perspective, long term, Things were looking just great and were progressing perfectly. <laughs> Don't you like that? Although things are looking pretty bad here, down on this earth from a physical human perspective, from the heavenly perspective, things are looking just great and are progressing perfectly. Things are working out for good. So here we see the power of having the correct perspective, the heavenly, eternal perspective. And how we need to guard against Satan twisting our minds to think that God has deserted us whenever God allows us to go through a trial. It's so important for us to put into practice what James says in chapter 5, verse 8. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. We need to purposefully and deliberately and daily establish our hearts. We need to set, confirm, or fix our mind on heavenly or eternal things. It's not something that you just do once and forget about. It's not like a set and forget. It's something we need to continually do. We have to keep on doing this. If we don't, we will forget. We've got to be in the Word every day. So I'm going to read Psalm 73. Listen to what's going on on the inside of Asaph in his heart. Truly God is good to Israel, to those whose hearts are pure. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. These fat cats have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride they seek to crush others. They boast against the very heavens, and their words strut throughout the earth. And so the people are dismayed and confused, drinking in all their words. What does God know, they ask? Does the Most High even know what's happening? Look at these wicked people, enjoying a life of ease, while their riches multiply. 
You see his perspective? He actually said, he's getting envious. Verse 3, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. And we can do the same thing, you know. People living together, whatever. They're happy, they're having fun, they're getting physical pleasure, all these things. But what's the end of that? You know, well, we have to have the big picture, a different perspective. Because Asaf continues in verse 13, Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? And we wonder, what's the point? Why keep on serving the Lord? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Who can relate to that? If I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. So he didn't really want to tell the other people what was going on inside his heart. So I tried to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. Humanly speaking, it's impossible. Then, verse 17, I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Now, he's establishing his heart. Now, he's starting to see the destiny of the wicked. He went into the sanctuary. He's spending time with the Lord, and God is revealing his perspective, God's perspective. God is revealing the heavenly perspective to Asa. Now, what is the heavenly perspective? Truly, you put them on a slippery path and send them sliding over the cliff to destruction. In an instant, they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When you arise, O Lord, you will laugh at their silly ideas as a person laughs at dreams in the morning. So he went from being envious of them to going, they're going to be destroyed in an instant, swept away by terrors. Now, he starts to repent in verse 21. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Again, speaking of our reward, yeah? Again, a change in perspective. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. What do you say in verse 3? I am envious of the wicked. Now, change in perspective. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. This is the perspective that we need to have. This is the perspective that James is talking about. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. You see the eternal perspective here? He is mine forever. God remains the strength of my heart. I have everything I need. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart forever. Those who desert him will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter. See, that's another way of establishing your heart. Make God your shelter. Don't seek shelter and protection from anything else but God. And I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. Like we read in Colossians. Tell other people about all the good things that God has done. Share the teaching that you've received. Encourage others to establish their hearts.
So just going to read James 5 verse 8 one more time. It says, You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So this week, your homework is to spend some time to deliberately, purposefully, think about what your perspective is, and spend time with the Lord, and allow the Lord to change your perspective to become his perspective. So let's pray. Father, Lord, there's going to be things in all of us which are going to need a bit of fine-tuning or, in some of us, a lot of throwing out, a lot of replacing. Help us to be students of your word. Help us to be a true disciple, Lord, someone who follows you, someone who doesn't quit, someone who doesn't give up, someone who keeps on studying, someone who keeps on learning, someone who keeps on obeying, someone who is willing to spend time in your presence and allow you to change their hearts. And Psalm 139, try me and see if there's any evil way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So we just pray that prayer. Show us what's really in our hearts. If we have the wrong perspective, if we are somewhere deep down in our hearts seeking contentment from the things of this world, whether it be job or money or relationships or whatever it might be, then I just pray that you reveal those things to us and that we'll be seeking everything we need from you. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the things you do. Amen.